Welcome to this episode of Cold Scenes K-Pop Unmuted. I'm one of your co-hosts, Tamar Herman, and I'm here today with... Stephen Knight. And Joe Palmer. This week's episode is on the soon-to-air Korean television show Produce 48, the new season of the Produce series that we already saw from Produce uh, 101's both season one and season two. And we have a very special guest with us today. Yeah, Patrick St. Michel is our guest. He's a music and culture writer based in Tokyo. He writes all kinds of places, including The Atlantic, Pitchfork, Japan Times. Uh, his blog on Japanese music is makebelievemelodies.com. And he's recently published a book in the 33 and a Third series on Perfume's album, The Game. He's a former guest, and it's great to have him back. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me on again. I'm glad I can be part of a two-timer club. Yeah, well, we couldn't discuss Produce 48 without having you on, so this would be fun. I'm glad that's my area of expertise. Thanks. <laughs> well, it's all the memes you were posting. It's true. I'm on top of the memes, the uh, intro videos. Got to be on top of it. Produce 48 is more of a, a jumping off point for a big discussion that we have been planning for a while, which is what makes an idol? What is an idol? And I think this is the perfect sort of setting for it because... Yeah, I, I watched Produce 101 season one for the first time only about two months ago. And I really, you know, it, you realize how much different things can make an idol great or make them, you know, famous. And it, it really like changes your perceptions of like the talent of one, a personality of one, you know, just general charm. And also the fact that AKB48, who are the uh, other half of Produce 48, along with the 48, uh, Korean trainees have kind of become the go-to example of what an idol group is in Japan. And we know that Korea has sort of taken inspiration from the Japanese idol system. So we, we figured it was a, a great jumping off point for a discussion on idols in general. And I wanted to ask Patrick, does this make sense, you know, combining Produce 101 and AKB, AKB 48? Is it, is, it, is it a natural fit, do you think? I do think it's a pretty natural fit. Uh, I remember when I think it was Produce 101, the first season, I think they had a few teaser images or videos for it. And I remember in the sort of J-pop Twitter community, everyone was commenting on how it looked exactly like AKB48's annual general election sort of promotional materials, just all these young women kind of lined up in this pyramid-like, I mean, it looks like doll cases almost, kind of ranking them. And the sheer numbers. The sheer numbers. uh, I mean, honestly, AKB48 and all their sister groups like easily dwarf any of the Produce 101 collectives, like even, you know, just all the contestants who come on. But that's all to say, yeah, I do think it's a very natural fit because... The ideas they're playing around with, both on this one show and with the group they produce at the end, and what AKB48 has been doing for like over a decade now, they cover very similar terrain. Uh, Patrick, you mentioned that there's like the general election. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I'm not sure if everybody listening might know what 
how AKB48 works. Let's dive into the J-pop deep end. <laughs> uh, it's perfect because it's going on right now as we speak. Oh, is it? Uh, so with AKB48, something they've been doing since they started in 2007 is every May and June, they release a special single. For the most part, you have to buy it physically at a CD store here or from one of their official AKB48 stores. Though recently, they've actually allowed you to buy it online as well. Big breakthrough in 2018. But the idea is each copy of this CD single comes with a ballot for their annual election, which is basically just a popularity contest. It gives people the chance to rank the AKB48 members from you know, the very top, the most popular to originally it was 48th, uh, hence the name AKB48. Uh, since then, it's expanded to several hundred women. So gets pretty deep down there. So instead of how like produce, you text the votes or whatever it is, or do it online, and this is you have to actually buy an album to get the right to vote. Yes, exactly. And the marketing genius of it is, uh, unlike real democracy, uh, the more <laughs> copies you buy, the more votes you get. So really dedicated fans can, you know, get dozens of ballots, hundreds of ballots. I mean, every year around this time, there's a story of, like hikers in a forest finding stacks <laughs> of like CDs just tucked away like in a meadow somewhere because it's like we got the ballots we don't need this music who needs this so that's always like a big but they don't want to throw them away right so they just put them in a safe place that's so wasteful oh my god just like sell the paper I, oh, I'm so mad that's so wasteful but the, but hey, they're they're finally getting around to online edition. So hopefully we'll protect the environment a little more. But this is kind of their big flagship uh, happening every year. And it does resemble kind of what Produce 101 has done other than, yeah, you actually just vote with your phone or I guess your computer as well and not, yeah, dropping the equivalent of $10 on a CD. Have you noticed, especially because like, I think the election results are out on Saturday, right? And the Produce 48 episode one is on Friday. I was wondering, have you noticed Japanese fans talking about Produce 48 in the run-up to this? Because we know that Produce 48 has the number three and number four girls from the last year's election, which I think is, could. I mean, I'm sure they're going to be in the top five somewhere again, but have people been thinking about them more because of Produce 48? Ah, that's an interesting question. Because I think so far in Japan, Produce 48 hasn't gotten nearly as much attention as what appears to be happening in Korea, where it's getting the bulk of attention. Even when it was announced they would be doing this last fall, at, when they came to Yokohama for that award show, and they made the big announcement, you know, it went viral in K-pop communities and among K-pop fans. But in Japan, uh, you know, AKB fans were excited, as you would imagine. But the Japanese music media wasn't particularly, like, hyped to cover it. It kind of was just like, oh, yes, this is going to happen. Do you think it was because, like, it was Korea or because it was just outside of Japan or because, like, they just have so much going on with AKB that, like, they, they didn't care? I think it's a little of both. Uh, I think part of the fact that it's happening outside of Japan definitely limits the number of people sort of naturally who can like follow it 
you know, in a more mainstream way. I would also say because another important thing with AKB48 is they're not really sort of a nationally popular group. It's not like a group average people, for lack of a better word, listen to for fun. It's a really hardcore undertaking. Hence the buying thousands of CDs and throwing them into a river. But so yeah, there's kind of those fans already know about that. So there's kind of not a big push to share it more just because at this point, AKB isn't really the biggest like girl group in Japan. They're kind, sure. Their time has already kind of passed, actually. Well, this is kind of undercutting one of my theories. We may be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but since we're talking about voting, you know, it was recently announced that the voting will only be occurring in Korea, uh, which seems sort of an odd thing. And, and one of my theories about it was, you know, they've had these videos on YouTube and uh, I'm not really sure how the voting works, but they're picking the center for the first show. And what they said about the voting is, well, there's so many, you know, AKB 48 is so well established. There's so many fans that we think if we allowed voting from Japan, they would just overwhelm the show. And I wonder if some of that comes from, you know, the analytics from the YouTube videos that there's hardcore AKB fans that are just overwhelming that uh, pre-show voting. So I know like we want to like get into the topic of like what is idols, but I actually assumed the total opposite of what you're saying. I assumed it was they weren't getting any interest from Japanese. Yeah, it could be. Could be. But you know the center is a Japanese idol, right? Japanese idol, yeah. Yeah. So maybe that would make sense with your theory that they were being overwhelmed. Yeah, I I imagine it's kind of I mean, yeah, to take the middle on it. I think it's a little of both in that the really hardcore supporters, especially of the women who are taking part in this, uh, because another important thing with AKB48 is you kind of gravitate to your favorite performer and kind of just support them rather than the group. Okay. So that's important as well. And also could lead to more general hardcore AKB48 fans and those who don't see their favorite representing in this show kind of just ignoring it. But I imagine the people who do have a rooting interest are kind of going all in on it because they see that it's a rare opportunity to sort of promote their favorite performer in another country, especially one that has always seemed quite, for lack of a better term, off limits than Korea. Interesting. So my understanding, taking a step back and then thinking about idols in general, my understanding is that the idol concept sort of originated in Japan. I've seen Pink Lady referred to as idols. Uh, I guess a lot of it depends on what what you mean by an idol, whether it, it's you have to come through the idol system or whether it's just what sort of an, an act you are. But is that accurate? Is it kind of a, originally a Japanese concept? Funny enough, it's, it's mostly associated with Japan. I think that's accurate. Yeah. But it actually has its roots in France. Oh, wow. Yeah, because in the 1960s, when the Japanese music industry was really kind of starting to establish itself, there was a heavy interest in French performers. And in particular, there's an artist named Sylvia Varton, who was really big in Japan in the 1960s. And she was also an actress, and she appeared in a movie that I do not know how to speak French, so I'm not going <laughs> to pronounce this. But 
the title, one of the words kind of translates to idol. So she kind of actually became the first idol in Japan because she had this image of a young woman who's kind of innocent and can and has multiple talents. She could act, she could sing, you know, she would do radio shows when she visited Japan. So the concept comes from France, but it was Japan that kind of took it and then really ran with it. Especially in the 1970s, yeah. they introduced the big breakthrough moment was they introduced their own talent show. I believe it was called A Star is Born, I think. And it was, I mean, it was kind of like the American show, like Star Search. You would just have a bunch of people come up, they would sing a song, and then you would see who fans like liked the most. And from that show, some of the foundational idols emerged. These are all girls who were teenagers at the time. All of the early idols, and this carries over, they all would wear Japanese schoolgirl outfits, the sailor suits. Yeah. That ended up being a huge part of their image, the idea of innocence. Yeah, from there, it just kept building and building. And it would go through phases where solo singers would be the most popular. And then you would have a group like, as you mentioned, Pink Lady, who kind of merged idol music with disco and became this national phenomena. You'd also have other groups. There's a notable one called Candies from the late 70s that showed you could have a group of young women together. And just over the past few decades, it's changed in so many ways. But that's kind of the the beginnings of it all. Do you have a first group that you consider the first idol group? First group? I think Pink Lady is probably the most famous group. Mm-hmm. Them or the other group I mentioned, Candies, they came up in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And they both kind of came after a point where solo idols were kind of losing a little steam in terms of popularity. Mm-hmm. And they showed you could do something a little different and, you know, bring in tons of fans. That's cool. Pink Lady's interesting because I actually see a lot of parallels to AKB48 right now with them because mm-hmm. when their popularity started to fade in Japan in like 1979, they actually attempted to cross over to America and they launched a variety show. I don't know if you've ever heard. Do you know the show Pink Lady and Jeff? I've seen clips. You've seen clips. So you know the oh, horror. It's rough. It's rough. It's, yes. Uh, it's a show that it was a variety show on NBC in the late 70s that single handedly killed the variety <laughs> show format in the United States. It was so bad. And watch like even then it was bad. Uh, watching it now, you're just yeah. like, this is racist. This is who greenlit this. Yeah, I just pulled up the but, Wikipedia page and it's like, yeah, there were six episodes and there was one unaired because it was just so bad. They had to destroy <laughs> it, just get rid of it. Uh, but it's interesting because AKB forty eight's in a similar position in that their sort of high point in Japan is over and you can kind of see them doing things like produce forty eight now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I see why you're doing this. It's because your market here is starting to dry up ever so slightly. So uh, history, you know, everything connects. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because you think of the Japanese music industry as being very insular and focused on Japan. And I hadn't really thought about the fact that the whole Produce 48 project is, you know, reaching out to Korea. But it, it, you're saying there's also other things that they're doing that are reaching out to other parts of Asia and the world. 
Yeah, uh, to AKB48's credit, they've probably been the best Japanese group and or organization, uh, in the music industry at least, in terms of spreading Japanese music in Asia. It's nowhere mm-hmm. near as efficient as what K-pop does. But, for example, they've started sister groups in several Asian countries. They are in... Taiwan, Indonesia, Thailand, the Philippines. Uh, oh, they want to start one in India. I don't know if that'll actually happen. Be cool. But yeah, they're kind of doing none of these things, unlike K-pop in Asia, which is this dominant sound that if you turn on the radio in Thailand, for example, you're probably going to hear a BTS song like pretty quickly. This is more in the AKB model where it's appealing to hardcore fans who will support the artist. And it's kind of sharing this style of J-pop idol with the world. AKB has been very good about spreading themselves in the continent. And part of it is because they know that to stay relevant, they need to go beyond Japan. Well, Tamar, does this make you think of any Isuman project that uh, SM is up to? You think he's been keeping a close eye on what... (laughs) AKB48 is doing. You've written some about them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think NCT definitely comes from the AKB model to some degree. But I think this is also not even that NCT comes from it. I think that, like, originally Super Junior was also kind of based off of the AKB model, which I'm now thinking about that. And I'm like, when did, what year did AKB48 start? Because I don't know that. Oh, it's the same year. So that's actually even more interesting to me. But I mean, when you look at SM, like the whole goal of SM has always been to export their music internationally. Trying to explain to people that K-pop is not necessarily for Korean audiences is like baffling to them. Hmm. But with SM, at least they've tried now for, for years to, you know, jump beyond the Korean market from the get-go rather than like, you know, let a group develop in Korea and then spread or, or like if we saw with BTS, like they got popular and then kind of got popular in Korea to follow. SM's tried with first with Super Junior to like create these groups that are not limited by their identity of the members, which AKB48 has achieved. Uh, and then you saw XO, M and XOK, which was, we're going to aim for two markets at once with separate members. That clearly did not work. But now we have NCT, and and it does seem that they're at least trying to continue launching in different markets and in different uh, locations, some with the same members like, and some with hopefully new members. I think they're still planning on adding more members, at least for the 2018 lineup. So right now there are rumors of a China group coming out. There was a Live recently where the Chinese members and the time member 10 were filming together. And the assumption was, is that they were filming for, they were like preparing for the Chinese albums. They were taking like, this was like behind the scenes of their photo shoot or whatever. So I guess if, if the China group gets released, we'll find that out based on what they're wearing. And then also they are, they are pushing further into Thailand. They just had a, a fan meet in Thailand with two of the members. And it does seem like they are, you know, pushing into the US market quite considerably this year with NCT 127. And they also just debuted in Japan. So I think that the the rather complex idea of what NCT is, is kind of easily explained as SM's version of trying to make a group that just can go anywhere and do anything which they want, which I think AKB48 kind of started for idols. So in K-pop, we associate the concept of an idol a lot with the idol system, you know, of taking 
kids and training them, debuting them after they've been trained. Is the idol system, is that part of the Japanese concept of an idol? And it sounds like that wasn't originally part of what made someone an idol. So in definitely in recent years, that has especially given K-pop success in Japan and abroad. More companies have kind of come to that system. I would say with male idols in Japan, it's always kind of looked quite similar to what K-pop does, has done, really, because I think a lot of K-pop companies were influenced by what male idol companies sort of instituted in like the 80s and 90s. However, for groups like AKB48 and smaller idol groups, it's actually quite the opposite. Uh, The idea actually is when the idol debuts, they debut quite early and I mean, usually quite young as well. I mean, we're talking like 13, 14. Early on, they usually aren't good at singing or dancing. And if you watch them live, the newer members, they'll make mistakes, they'll sing off key, they'll like screw up choreography. And the idea here is that's actually good because with J-pop idols, Uh, it's been described by many writers here as it's kind of like a journey you take with the idol. So you sort of find a new idol you like. Maybe it's an AKB48. One of their new members is like, oh, she likes ramen. I like ramen. That's the connection I need. And then you kind of support her as she goes from this rookie, basically, who like messes up constantly to... In, in theory, a star who's a real idol and can maybe be voted in the top 12 of the AKB election. And this kind of connection between fan and audience member is really critical with idol music today. To quick history, um, the guy behind AKB48, his name's Akimoto Yasushi. Uh, I believe he's 60 now. But in the 80s, he actually started the first idol group that predicted what AKB48 would be. It's called Onyanko Club. And they introduced the idea of many young girls who weren't like good at singing or dancing at first and who would eventually graduate. So you would always have a supply of young talent. Uh, And then AKB48 perfects this. Their motto is idols you can meet. They commonly, maybe not as much anymore, but when they started in 2007, it was like you could meet their members on the streets of Akihabara, where their theater is based. Every night, they have a show at their theater that has different teams performing. So you could go weekly if you wanted to and watch your favorite member develop. Does anybody? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, the really hardcore ones will go to their theater pretty regularly. Like, I've tried, like going up to their theater when they're doing a show and it's always packed like even in 2017 2018 besides the the ballots for the election they include handshake tickets with new singles so if you buy like 10 singles of their newest song you get 10 handshake tickets where it's like you can go to a special event and you get to shake the hand of your favorite idol for like two seconds but since you have 10 tickets, you can do it 10 times. So this idea of being, <laughs> of being able to like have this fake relationship 
and fans kind of know it's fake, but they just buy into it. Like that's a really strong selling point of idols. I mean, I think that crosses over to K-pop a hundred percent also. Project 48 seems to be like really taking on that. And the kind of competition of the, you know, if you watch all the intros and the, the trailer that was released just this morning, I think it's very much teasing a show that's the Japanese women are not very talented. You know, their their dancing is poor, their singing is poor, and then the Korean women are all really good. You know, well trained. But then again, you watch the intros, and most of the Japanese women come off better because probably they're a little bit more seasoned and they're all based on you know like personality. So there's like. Uh, one woman who just only talks about fishing. She's done it in two videos so far. How great she is at fishing, <laughs> and you know, no mention of singing or dancing or anything. And it, it, it's, I think, a great illustration. And I think the final group of Produce Forty Eight will really change some people's minds and like the idea of what idol, idols can be. You know, even if season one and two haven't already done that for you. Mm. Yeah, I think Produce 101 is interesting. You, you, uh, the idea of improving as you go along, sort of the proto-idol that you watch, that's one of the Produce 101's favorite storylines, mm-hmm. if they can find someone who's really struggling. And, you know, you got to squeeze it into just a few months. But uh, that's something that you you don't traditionally see in K-pop. But that's another reason maybe AKB48 makes sense to combine with Produce 101 because that's a sort of similar draw. I mean, somebody made IOI just based on the fact that she improved so incredibly much. <laughs> yeah, I she was there. And yeah. she was very likable. I, I put her in every time. Like, she's the story <laughs> yeah. of the, the season, definitely. She was the one I was rooting for, so. <laughs> I, I don't disagree. Yeah. yeah, Patrick, I've been wanting to ask you, um, there's this idea that J-pop idols are not as focused on perfection as in K-pop it's interesting to me, one of the really charming things about J-pop idol groups to me is so many of them are just based on appearance. You know, they're kind of ordinary people. They're attractive people, but they don't look like they're all Miss Korea contestants or mm. something. Uh, but AKB48 seems to be more focused on appearance. And I wonder if there's sort of a split there in Japanese idol groups. And, you know, if maybe the voting system is part of the reason for that, because Produce 101, you know, that's one of the criticisms that people have about that is, well, people are just voting for all the best looking people. Hmm. I think with AKB48, I mean, with a lot of things, especially the election, looks probably do factor in to some degree. But I do think what separates the top vote getters and the most popular members in general from the middle of the pack is you usually have to have something more than just looks. For example, like the current number one AKB48 member, who I think is retiring from the election this year because she's just been too dominant. Her name is Sashihara Reno. And she's, I mean, she looks fine and that's nothing strange there, but her, the reason she's sort of jumped to the front and become the most popular is because she's kind of overcome the most obstacles. She was caught with, oh, the worst crime in idol society. She had a boyfriend momentarily. (laughs) So um, (laughs) she was, she was transferred from AKB48, the main group to HKT48, which is on the other side of the country. 
And it was like, oh no, you've been punished. You have to go to the west coast of Japan. <laughs> but she, she kind of persevered from that. And not only did she sort of overcome that, she became really outspoken about how AKB48 works to the point like she would make fun of the system in like AKB TV shows and be like oh, oh wow that's great she's really i mean she's very unique in that she's almost meta about akb48 <laughs> but but that's the thing what set her apart was one overcoming a challenge uh being a human and having feelings for other people and <laughs> two kind of just showing what's special about you you know willing to speak your own mind willing to criticize the people in charge and even fans. She would make fun of fans for being like nerds, basically. <laughs> but people loved it. They were like, wow, she's telling it like it is. Yeah. Donald Trump would make it before you? I don't know. You tell me. But, and then there's other members who like, maybe not as quote-unquote radical as that. Uh, there was a member named Mayu Watanabe who had also finished near the top. And she was more of a like traditionally innocent and cute, but she also had really interesting obsessions with, oh, I'm forgetting his name, the Japanese figure skater who won the gold medal this year. Oh, Yuzuru Hanyu. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like she was obsessed with him. And she had a she had a scandal where her insta her private Instagram was hacked, and there was a bunch of like I don't know her like lusting after photos of this figure skater, and it was kind of the same thing, kind of like overcoming that this sort of in, thing that should be embarrassing, but kind of just rolling with it and moving forward, like that that's charming to people. So you need a little extra and. It's maybe similar to what happened on Produce 101 Season 1 with some of the entries who, the entrants, who maybe weren't the most talented or like, you know, traditionally best looking, but had this really winning personality, this sort of go for it spirit, or like just kind of eccentric. So there, there's more to it than that. Yeah. I didn't watch the first season, but that definitely happened in the second season also especially like with new east members getting really high up into the rankings because like they rated them as like poor singers like they rated two, i think two of the members like got like the d or f class like it was embarrassing for a group that was like in their fifth year of their career i think and then it kind of like made people like oh we're gonna push them up because this is so pathetic <laughs> I mean, they're they're great. I like newies, but like it just kind of like you you saw a lot of people talking about like how how sad it was that like they're with like the 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 noobs and like they're just so so like pathetic in a way. <laughs> I don't think newies is pathetic. Yeah, well, there's a hundred people. You got to stand out. And then sympathy goes a long I way. I mean, and then even even somebody who I'm, I'm going to say it like it is. There's this YG. K plus model shoot I'm blanking on his name right now I think it's Hyunbin who was terrible like absolutely terrible and he didn't work hard either which is the weird thing but then he ended up in JBJ because people were like the once or twice where he decided to work hard they were like oh that's so endearing like I was just like oh okay <laughs> um, but it, it did seem in the second season that definitely and like when you look at who the center was 
it was somebody who was like charming and wasn't just like a good performer like Kang Daniel like he's he's not I wouldn't say he's the best performer that was on the show by far but he still like you know got to number one and even the number two was Wink Boy (laughs) (laughs) Wink Boy so I think that's a good time to get into as Tamara was giving her personal opinions to get into our opinions about what we think makes a great idol I think I'll start by saying that obviously there's so many things that you you might look for as a fan or as just a as a maybe as a music critic but I think the top things for me now are performance and expression and Produce 101 is kind of perfect for that expression side of it because it's basically just a show about faces and the great things that many of these people can do with their faces you know you think about Yu Jung who just like uh, on the whole show just by making funny faces or making you know really fierce faces yeah, I'm generally drawn to idols who can really capture a stage and, and hold attention. Even with groups I don't really like, I can I'll always watch like for maybe like uh, Edon and Pentagon or uh, Momo and Twice. But I, I do love Twice. But but I, I have a, a, an example of well, I have a few examples. But my way one for now is from Produce One Again, One One Again, and that's uh, Daya's Jung Cheon. Cheon in the in the show didn't get too much uh, airtime. You know, she was kind of always sort of present, but never kind of one of the bigger stars of the show. You know, if you really watch it, you can see that she can't really dance. She definitely can't sing. And yet she made it into the group, you know. not I don't think the Dia fans really had too much of a push on it because they weren't that big. And, you know, Hee-Hyun did not make it, her, her group member. But what she makes up for it in her lack of talent is just, again, these expressions and, you know, faces and just general charm, you know, whenever she's around, it's sort of, I found my eyes personally are drawn to her, you know, and she was the, the ending fairy, you know, uh, kind of part of the show, which is carrying on, which she sort of started. It's funny, I think of her almost as the ideal idol, and yet she has no real traits uh, to, to back herself up on stage, especially when I, when I love group uh, idols on stage. Yeah, I, f- I find that she's um, always an interesting look at, always interesting to wonder what she's going to do. You know, she's a little bit odd off stage and a, a really fascinating character, I think. Well, that's one of the things I took away from the JYP 16 show where they chose twice. And I think that JYP would say what you want about him, but he knows he knows what he's doing. And one thing he tried to emphasize was, look, it's not a it's not a talent contest. Like we're not picking the best singers and dancers. You need to be someone who people want to watch. I mean, that's that's the main thing. You need to be entertaining uh, you need to be able to connect with the audience. And, I, you know, that's that's the key to being an idol. It's, as Patrick was mentioning before, part of it is versatility. You know, idols are ideally should be able to sing and dance and act and, you know, perform on variety shows and and most importantly, be mm-hmm. spokespeople or, you know, spokesmodels for products that they're selling. I think that's the main endpoint of the business model of the idol system. But, you know, when you, you asked about what do you think of when you think of an idol or what's a great idol, the first people that come to mind for me are people like uh, Chong Hyun of, of Shiny or IU or Boa. But they're, I mean, they just have so much talent. Mm. That That's not to me what an idol really is about. They're kind of crappy idols in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, they could be, they could be pop stars, anywhere it's not they don't have specific idol skills necessarily mm-hmm. i mentioned uh, I, I noted down chinese jonghyun as well he's my 
would be my ideal idol on stage. You know, he was always the one I wanted to see live the most. Yeah. Uh, and he like combined sort of the artistry, you know, of being maybe a more traditional musical artist with classic idol traits of being able to dance and sing. And yeah, he, he was always the one I wanted to see most on stage. And that's one of the things that I think that younger idols and trainees really struggle with is the onstage stuff, finding the camera and and uh, being comfortable enough with what you're doing that you can be expressive uh, rather than just, you know, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, where's the camera? Yeah. And if you watch a IOI's uh, <laughs> live stages for very, 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 it's great. It's like a, they're all playing like a game as who can put in the most expressions into the one. Because like, there'd be like a close up. So me and, you know, Minna in the back is winking to the camera. You know, she's like, it's not, not the focus, but she can still, you know, it's like a, a little game to them, which I, I find so fun. So I feel like when I, you know, like, of course, like, I'm here for the, the music first and foremost, but um, I tend to like groups or idols when I watch shows with them, like variety shows, or just like a lot of YouTube videos or nowadays Live. Like sometimes I question like, oh, is this professional of me to be watching Lives? But at the same time, it makes me respect them more even if like they're just being normal human beings because i think that like i definitely am eating into that idea of like personal connections between idols and fans like nowadays v live is like you're almost like facetiming with someone except you're not saying anything yeah i don't think you can understand k-pop without knowing something about that part of it yeah i mean if you've ever seen any of the like polls that like the korean government or like organizations have done um, they'll always say that like the number one thing for people to get into K-pop is the dance. Yeah. And I'm always just sitting here like, really? Like, that's what it is? I get if you <laughs> say the music that the dance draws you in. They're like, why would you stick around just for the dance? There's great dancing in other like places also. So that always surprised me because for me, it always felt like learning who the like the people behind these videos are. Because you hear all the time about how manufactured it is and kind of by like learning about who these idols are about like obviously on camera, but like when they're not in a music video always makes it feel a little bit more real to me. There's so much criticism about K-pop being like, you know, super manufactured and stuff, but even, even if they're not producing the music, they're still working like their butts off. But I don't look towards that for like singers. I don't consider idols at all. Like that's not anything I'm ever remotely interested. I hate reality TV, which is like super ironic. Um, (laughs) But it's, it's just, I feel like it is some level of like the idols, they are multi-talented entertainers. So like a, a good singer and a good dancer is like wonderful, but it, it doesn't necessarily, I wouldn't say matter. It does matter. It definitely matters, but it matters a little bit less than I think it would for someone like, like One Direction or something who they're promoting isn't themselves as idols, they're promoting themselves as a boy band. Like solely. Yeah, I think hearing all of that about K-pop idols is really interesting, especially with the live streaming, what V V casting. This is way after my time of like peak K-pop. Oh, V Live! V Live! Neighbors V Live, and now now SM is doing. I think it's called It's SM, but like it's weird because they're still doing V Live. So I'm kind of trying to figure out like when they're going to jump ship entirely and leave Naver and then the SM1 is not going to take off like all other SM apps have not taken off. Sorry, SM. Yeah, that's so like, that's so much like ahead of where J-pop idols are. There is one like streaming channel people can go to to see idols. You just like tune in nightly and there's a different idol every night. You never know what you'll get. Only recently, idols have really been allowed to 
use social media or like I don't know I see more idols doing like Instagram live videos now and you used to not see that at all it just used to be so controlled so it's it's interesting you know knowing how vital that is for K-pop fans knowing that it's finally coming to Japan but I did want to say when it comes to J-pop idols the most famous idol of all time is an artist from the 1980s named Seiko Matsuda She's known as the Eternal Idol. She set the, I, I guess, eternal groundwork for what people expect an idol to be like. She wasn't the best singer. She wasn't the best dancer. She actually was quite monotone in her performances from the 80s. But she had this charm to her uh, in the 80s, in her heyday, that people could connect with. And she was kind of such a blank slate that people could project their own ideas onto her. So it was finding this ability to flash enough of your own personality, whether that's in interviews or just the small things you do on stage, while also leaving so much to the imagination, sort of building this connection through that. And with J-pop idols... Most of the major groups going today uh, and most of the solo idols going today still play around with that idea of just, you know, giving as much personal as they can, but always leaving a little off the table to make sure, you know, there's a little bit of vagueness that the fan themselves can color in as they'd like. That makes sense if you're trying to have broad appeal, right? Well, it only mostly results in really hardcore groups. I mean, but then again, she was really big at a time, a much different time. But it does help you stick stand out in sort of a social media age as well. So we can move on to our our unmuted picks for the the last few weeks then. And I guess I'll kick us off with a quick one. And in keeping with the Produce 101 theme, their uh, leader, uh, I think, Sehun was in Produce 101 Season 1. She did quite poorly. Uh, she you saw her a couple confessional interviews, but that's about it. She's in the group called Girl Kind. And uh, they released a song called S-O-R-R-Y. It's pretty cheap, uh, really terrible video to go along with it. But I love how it's like it feels like a, a kind of proper dance song rather than like a, a pop song. It has sort of tropical influences there and this like kind of recurring S-O-R-R-Y uh, kind of hook but it recurs so much that it sort of changes the structure so you kind of have an opening sort of a little verse and then this chorus starts and it basically the same sort of melody just stays with the song nearly the whole time until they get to the bridge so these like two raps that they have come in very surprisingly and the f- song sort of feels so expansive because of this you know by the time you get to the the second rap it's only about two minutes in but it really feels like it's been going on for so long and i think many people see that as a negative and it probably is but it it, it feels like a very unique way to to um approach a song and, and the raps are quite good you know the first one is a uh, auto-tuned which i always love and the second one has a, a nice bit of excitement to it I think overall, Gokind, I still, 
a group with potential that have yet to find that really great song. You know, the first one, Fancy, was pretty generic, hip-hop, electro thing, and this one uh, is a little bit too odd and cheap-sounding to really push them out. Some of the harmonies gave me kind of a 21 vibe. Yeah, yeah, I saw the connections there as well. Well, Patrick, I'm really excited to hear about your pick because I was just been kicking myself all week that I didn't pick it myself, and I'm really glad that uh, that someone did, especially you. Well, I hope I can live up to that those expectations. Edge, it better be good. Oh, God. Oh, be God. Good. <laughs> Let me prepare. I'll give you 10 minutes. I chose Yubin's Lady. It's the debut single from the former Wonder Girls member. So I chose it. One, it is a really catchy, great song. But two, part of what made it stand out to me and it also, I think, is a good fit for this episode of the show, is the song and the music especially appears to be based off of city pop, a genre that's heyday was in the 1980s of Japan, and which in the past, I don't know, three years has had a sort of internet revival. I don't know, lots of people with tumblers that just have photos of neon lights <laughs> really like city pop. <laughs> It's a great kind of music from the 80s, which was Japan's economic heyday. It's funk meets disco meets like soul and R&B using the most cutting edge technology of the day to create this really glitzy, luxurious sounding music that was designed specifically for consumers in Japan to listen to while driving in cars through the city. The video for Lady goes all in on what the kids would call the city pop aesthetic. I mean, it starts with her cruising down this like dark highway, skyscrapers and lights in the background. It's so bubble era Japan. And it's really interesting seeing a Korean artist kind of replicating that. One, because Korea had its own, like, funk and soul music in the 80s, but it sounds way different than this. Like, this is really trying to capture the, I mean, almost maximalism of this kind of pop music. I mean, it's got these glimmering synths and this, like, guitar solo that comes in later that is so city pop, so, uh, so good. But all of it does feel like a copy of a copy, which also adds to the, for me at least, the intrigue of the song, because all of it's trying to recreate the sound that in the 80s you could only get from buying the best synthesizer, the best guitar, like having the best effects pedals around. But this, I think, is way more like it's a studio trying to imagine what that's like. And I imagine using digital technology, it's way easier to recreate. And there is part of the song that feels a little off when you listen to older city pop or even idols from the late 80s who were inspired by city pop. Uh, one that came to mind, Miho Nakayama. Check them out, listeners. It's an interesting juxtaposition in the song. And beyond all of that sort of brain food, it's just a really catchy song. Great chorus. It really does the 80s sound justice. 
even if it feels a little off because, you know, times have changed. But yeah, I love it. So good. Yeah, it's great. I really, I, I keep telling myself I need to dig into City Pop because every time somebody puts out a City Pop song, I, I love it. So I need to go back and listen to the original. I'm not gonna lie, like I, I had heard Japanese city pop stuff before, but I never like thought of it as like a specific genre built for driving around the city in. <laughs> so I liked Complete from On Off's new album. It came kind of at a weird point of the group's career because uh, the group is supposed to sort of go on a hiatus because of the YG Entertainment Mix 9 group but that didn't end up happening. So they kind of got their act together really quickly and put out this album. And, you know, like on first listen, just like, oh, this is a cool, like vibrant EDM summer dance pop track. And then every time I listened to the song again, like it just really got further and further and meshed into my brain as, oh, this is a great song for like some interesting reasons. And I think my favorite part about it is that You know, we were talking earlier about like how idols, do they need to have really good talent? And this song kind of like laughs at it that way. Like the verses clearly show that the group is made up of really good singers. And then the chorus is just full on auto tune and full on like warping as they do this belt of like, I'm not going to sing it, but the You Complete Me belt. And it's just kind of a little bit funny every time I listen to it. I'm just like, they're kind of, they're from a really good label who's always, music I always like, they come from the same label, uh, WM, which produced B1A4 and Oh My Girl. It's like, you know that like the creative team knows what they're doing. And they kind of just, you know, went for, we're gonna release this song with a chorus that just totally doesn't sound at all human. And it just works so well. I feel like we keep on thinking that EDM is is leaving K-pop and then something like this happens and they're like, oh, this is great. I like it again. Yeah, I agree. It's been kind of growing me almost exactly the same. Purely because of the, the chorus is so infectious, it's just so like loud that they're almost just shouting it out. And then again, with the they sort of bring it back and edit it for the the breakdown, which I love as well. You know, it's, yeah, something at first it seems a little bit generic and what we've heard a lot of, but I don't know. They do a lot of nice detailed stuff that works. Like it's complex without being overtly so, and it's just really well produced song. And I think it's a really good look for on off um i like their first single too but i didn't think it was quite as impactful but this one like walking down the street and i'm like oh you can play <laughs> like it gets stuck in your head and there's no sister yeah. of this summer yet so i'm like oh this can be my like summer summer little bounce well i endorse that pick every time i think that i'm just hopelessly girl group biased somebody will come out you know the boy group puts out a great song i like it <laughs> <laughs> Glad you approve. Yeah, no, it's that's a great song. There was another one I can't remember what it is, but there were two that came out right together that I thought were really good. I'm guessing it's Aces. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Take, take me higher. Sorry, take me higher. Take me higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good one too. Well, the song I want to talk about also has some uh, Produce 101 and Survival Show tie-ins. It's WJMK's Strong. WJMK is a collaboration project between a couple of members from WJSN, which is the Cosmic Girls, and Wiki Mickey. And the song is okay. It's kind of empty calories. You know, speaking of which, if you look at it as a Pepsi commercial, it's spectacularly <laughs> good. <laughs> you know, and the K-pop song is just fine. But why, why can't we have commercials like this? Why are all, all the good commercials? We need to do an episode on 
K-pop based commercials. You know, what I really like about it is I hope it becomes a trend, this idea of collaborations between different groups and different agencies, these kind of super subunits. One of my favorite things about awards shows and KCON and stuff is when they have these collaboration stages. But Pepsi did something similar with YDDP, which had artists from Starship and Brand New Music, some of whom were Produce 101 Season 2 contestants. And I, I, I can't think of other examples of cross-group collaborations. Oh, I can. Uh, are there a lot? Like in the in the early... Within YG, YG, I guess, did the early 21 and, and uh, Big Bang, right? Or within like in the early 2010s, it was like a fad. Like there were oh, yeah. like Super Generation, Wonder Bang. Like they were like yeah. nicknames for them. <laughs> 2PM and, and Girls Generation did this like, um, what was it called? Cabby song. They were like advertising a water park. LG phone ads. There was an after school one with Stone Dumby for OLED. I don't even know what OLED is, but I know that song. I'm like, I'm like, yeah. I'm <laughs> Sorry. It was a thing and I'm really happy that it's happening. Hey, daddy, take a I think Produce 101 is, aside from the fact that the members who are involved in these recent ones are come out of Produce 101, I think that, you know, Produce 101 in a way is sort of like a prequel of a multi-group collaboration because, you know, these are groups that in the future are going to be, members are going to be in different groups. And, you know, that works so well. I think hopefully that inspires more of these kind of cross-agency projects. But it, it's a fun song, but it's more the uh, the idea that I'm I'm into. Well, Patrick, it's been a lot of fun having you on the show. I learned a lot of things about idols, the history of idols that I didn't know. Where can listeners find you online? What's the best place to keep up with what you're doing and writing? The best places to go, Twitter is pretty active, uh, twitter.com slash mbmelodies. Also, just check out makebelievemelodies.com for all of your independent slash J-pop needs. And you can sign up for the newsletter yes. there. Yes, ooh, thank you. Go to tinyletter.com slash mbmelodies. Uh, every week, you can get me in your inbox talking about Eurobeat songs that are bafflingly popular in the summer of 2018. And Tamar, where can uh, our listeners find you? You can find me most of the time sitting on Twitter at Tamar Writes, also the, at Tamar Writes on Instagram, but I usually just post pictures of my niece there. Um, and my articles could be found mostly at Billboard and Forbes.com, although recently I got my first Entertainment Weekly article and I'm very excited about that. Thank you. So, yeah, so that's that's what I'm up to. And Joe? You can find me on Twitter as well, at Captain Joe Hook, where the only thing I do is tweet about Luna. So, you know, if you're into that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at Tennessee Appeal on Twitter. And I also want to thank Scott in Toronto. He's been producing the last couple of episodes. It's, it's great to have him involved with the show. I'd like to get him behind a mic also. But uh, you can follow him at Scott in Toronto. That's I-N-T-E-R-R-A-N-T. T-E. We appreciate you listening. If you're listening online or somehow are not subscribed, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, where we would appreciate you leaving a rating or review if you like the show. And thank you for listening. Thank you.